Okay, I think we're ready to get started. Uh, it is great to join you this morning. Uh, good morning, Mississippi Valley Division, and welcome to today's episode of In the Valley. Today's spotlight is on a very special portion of our workforce whose duties and responsibilities directly contribute to the operation of the Mississippi River. Of course, the Mississippi River is everyone's business in MVD, but I think it's important to get to know those who are so closely tied to it on a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, most of us support them, not the other way around. Of note, the employees who work these specialties, as well as some specialties that we won't be covering today, have been mostly on duty at their place of duty throughout the pandemic. Their skills and functions are not only mission essential, but also essential for them to be at the workplace on the river or nearby. And despite the pandemic, they couldn't be, they couldn't do their work remotely or via telework. So that means that these employees have faced higher risk and it required their supervisors, such as the three that you see on the screen and that I'm gonna be interviewing, that means that they've had to find other ways, creative ways to go above and beyond to keep their people safe. Sometimes that meant creative shift work, extra protocols aboard vessels or in their facilities, lots and lots of COVID testing, but they have done these things very well. We appreciate them so much. It's also worth highlighting that most of the employees in these functions are wage grade employees as distinct from general schedule or GS employees. Sometimes we refer to wage grade as blue collar employees. Substantively, the principal difference is that they are paid in accordance with the federal wage system, which is a uniform pay setting system that covers employees who are paid by the hour. The system's purpose is to make sure that federal trade, craft, and laboring employees within a local wage area who perform the same duties receive the same rate of pay. And I think we're gonna talk about that a little bit later, some of the challenges associated with that. The general schedule, GS, is a separate pay system covering most other civilian federal employees, sometimes referred to as white collar workers, Surveys of non-federal employers, including state and local governments, determine the pay for GS employees. So now, time for introductions. Today's panel consists of three leaders from MVD. We have a lockmaster, a dredge boat captain, and the chief of the mat sinking unit. During my visit throughout the region, I've had the opportunity to meet each of them. I've learned a lot from them and thought they'd be the right leaders to share this fascinating side of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So without further ado, our panelists are Ms. Jane Matheson, a lockmaster and supervisor assigned to the St. Paul District. Jane currently serves at Lock and Dam number eight and will share some insights about the role of lockmasters, their teams, and how they contribute to the Corps' mission. Jane, why don't you uh, wave at the camera? All right, there she is in the red polo, and she, you see the background, that's her lock and dam in the background. We've got Captain Edward Morehouse, master and captain of the Dredge Wheeler. Ed is assigned to the New Orleans District and will educate us a little bit about the role that dredges play and how they contribute to the Corps' mission. I also want to note that Ed was recently named the 2021 recipient of the USACE Operations and Maintenance Castle Award. Ed, if you would wave at the camera. 
And uh, I, if, if I'm not mistaken, you are aboard your vessel right now near Calcasieu? Yes, that's correct. All right, thanks for being on. And Thank last you. but not least, Ms. Mr. Barry Sullivan, Chief of the Match Thinking Unit and assigned to the Vicksburg District. You see him waving there in the light blue shirt. Barry will share some insights about the mission of this one-of-a-kind capability. So thanks to the three of you for volunteering your time and helping to tell your story to our audience. I also want to note that we have a sign language interpreter, Danae Smith. You see her on the screen there. Uh, I will attempt to not talk so fast, Danae, <laughs> so that you can keep up with me. But thank you for joining us today. Uh, one administrative note, uh, please keep your mics on on mute unless you're one of the panelists and please keep your video off. Uh, we don't want to overwhelm, unless you're on the panel uh, or our sign language interpreter because we don't want to crash the network with too many people on video. So to get us started, I'd like each of you, each of our panelists to take two to three minutes to say a little about yourselves, perhaps where you're from, when you joined the Corps, what motivated you to go into your professional career field, and or anything else you'd like to share as an introduction. And we'll go in alphabetical order and start with Jane. Uh, good morning, thank you, ma'am, for that introduction. Um, again, my name is Jane Matheson. I'm a lock master here in St. Paul District. Um, I grew up in a neighboring town here along the river, a um, small town on the Minnesota side called the Crescent, population there about 5,000. Um, left the area for a while. Um, for school and the military and uh, came back and I've been with the Corps now about 23 years. And I worked my way up um, as a laborer through the lock operator ranks. I began my career at this site uh, as a laborer at Lock and Dam 8, um, moved to another site for the majority of my career and then returned here as supervisor uh, in 2016. Um, Currently, I'm uh, married. I have four kids. Uh, one of them still at home in high school as a junior, three others, two in college, and one uh, out off working. So my husband's general manager at a, a Culligan Water store. And uh, as a manager himself, um, just one thing to share about me is I feel fortunate to have uh, someone at home with the understanding when uh, you can talk about supervisory or management type of issues uh, uh, we share and uh, trade some um, information back and forth and uh, find some helpful things for my husband there at home. But regarding um, my motivation for coming on um, as a lockmaster, I didn't um, always want to be a lockmaster and I didn't realize I wanted to be in a supervisory role until about four years uh, into my career with the Corps. At that time, I worked my way up, as I mentioned, through the operator ranks, became a head operator. Um, I loved volunteering and um, taking on new challenges. I loved to continue my education, and I think it just kind of evolved that I uh, decided to return to get my college degree uh, in management, in supervisory management, and um, this role fell in my lap. I, I wasn't seeking uh, it um, per se with a college degree. I thought I needed to move elsewhere to uh, stay in that role, but uh, it worked out wonderfully for me. And uh, so, yeah, uh, being a supervisor and being the best supervisor that I can be here at Lock 8 has now been my focus. Great. Thank you, Jane. Appreciate that introduction. And we will now go to Captain Ed Morehouse. 
Sure, over to you. Sir, I think you're muted. Pulled the classic mistake, didn't I? <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, thank you uh, and uh, uh, welcome. I'm uh, Captain Morehouse, Edward Morehouse from the New Orleans District, Master of the Dredge Wheeler. Uh, I am uh, originally from uh, Florida uh, and moved all around as a uh, as as a uh, uh, child matriculating through uh, high school and, and college. I'm a graduate of the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy in uh, New York, uh, one of the five uh, service academies. Uh, uh, and uh, from uh, Kings Point, which I graduated from in 1980, I uh, went uh, uh, straight into the uh, merchant marine shipping out on on ships. My my goal and and career and and uh, um, desire was uh, to become a ship's captain. Uh, years, uh, it's what is uh, uh, inbred into uh, any graduate of a, of a service academy to. To uh, serve their uh, uh, their field, uh, my intent was to be sailing the seven seas and the and the uh, uh, the world and and, and uh, become a, uh, a you know a true uh, deep sea deep blue sea captain. And I sidetracked to the Corps of Engineers back in 1980 on a 1947 built steamship uh, dredge, the Langford, uh, in New Orleans. I'd only intended to be here for, uh, I had been doing some sailing uh, overseas and uh, I'd only intended on uh, being here for uh, a few weeks um, or a few months. And for some reason it grabbed me and now I'm living my dream uh, as the captain of, uh, of this ship and I've been doing it for 41 years. So, um, um, uh, it's a, it's an, it's a, it's my own personal story of. Fulfillment that the Corps uh, provided. Uh, I'm uh, married, living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania now, and um, uh, uh, wife and uh, children uh, uh, who have all matriculated out. So it's uh, just the two of us uh, uh, now in uh, Philadelphia and enjoying life there when I'm off the ship. So um, uh, that's the the short, the short and sweet uh, about me. All right. Thanks, Ed. And moving on to Barry, sir, over to you. Yes, ma'am, I'm doing good. How are you doing this morning? Outstanding, thanks. Thank you for the opportunity. I uh, grew up in a little town and have recently moved back there called Transylvania, Louisiana. It's kind of a curve in the road, but um, with a very small population. But I grew up there and basically in a farming community. And then I, I went on to uh, Louisiana Tech in, in civil engineering. And I graduated from Louisiana Tech in, in civil engineering in 87. And then I went to work for the Corps. Uh, I had worked for the Corps during college at, at, er, at, uh, at Waterways, as it was called at the time. But when I graduated, the uh, Corps had a hiring freeze on. So I, I worked for an engineering firm for a couple of years, a private firm doing water and sewer work, and I enjoyed that. But then an opening came in hydraulics branch in in uh, in Vicksburg, 
when I spent about 17 years of my career in that area, working in both hydraulics and hydrology, and also in uh, a good bit of time in, in the water quality uh, unit there. And later on, I got a, a, an opportunity to, um, and to go into operations division. And having done quite a few studies, I had I'd enjoyed my time in hydraulics, but it, it was time I wanted to do something more that was more hands-on. So um, that I started out in the navigation unit there as a chief and then went to the, uh, the dredging unit as a chief of, uh, of that unit. And then in 2015, I was selected as the chief of the mass sinking unit. And that has been my uh, career in life since then. Uh, when, when we started, when I, when I accepted the job, that they said, okay, we go out on the river and about three or four months out of the year during the, during the low water part of the year, and we put Matt on the banks. I said, sounds great. You know, we live out there. Well, you know, the needs have risen a little bit more uh, for bank protection. So it's, it's close to about half a year on the river and half a year at the house now, but I do enjoy what I do and I'm blessed to uh, have that opportunity. All right, thank you, Barry. And, you know, you said that uh, you wanted something a little more hands-on and I think that's exactly, you got what you asked for, I think, with the mat sinking unit. So clearly a good fit. Okay, so I'd like to switch questioning now uh, to each of you in your particular communities. Beginning with you, Jane, what exactly is a lockmaster, and and what is it what does it take to become one? Perhaps talk a little bit about what credentials, experiences, or training is required. Yes, thank you. Um, actually, as a lockmaster, I'm the overall manager of a field site uh, with supervisory responsibility um, at this location with approximately 14 employees. Um, I ensure safe and efficient operations of the lock and dam here at this particular site. Uh, while there is no uh, formal degree, college degree per se, to become a lock master, um, eligible candidates come from either the equipment repairer series or the lock operator series. Um, and usually only after years of experience and um, lots of knowledge under the belt. Um, I can also add that um, many of the hiring panels that I've been on recently for other supervisory roles uh, within these operation ranks, uh, many of these candidates actually to make themselves more competitive uh, for lockmaster positions here in St. Paul, they realize to make themselves stand out, they need to uh, take supervisory courses, um, management training, um, whether that be via college, in-house training, uh, independent training on their own. Uh, they'll volunteer for different details, making, uh, again, their skill set, their knowledge base um, as broad as it can be so that they, um, you know, can have that competitive edge. And overall, basically, they're developing themselves uh, to take on that lockmaster role of leading people. Well, thanks, Jane. Uh, I think that's insightful that some of the things that you identified, I think all of our fields are seeing that, that what may have made you qualified or competitive a decade or two ago, uh, the, you know, the standard or the expectations have become, have only grown. 
uh, whether it's formal training or self-development. So that's, that's great insight, thank you. Uh, so sticking with the, the lockmaster function, what are the primary duties of a lockmaster? And then, and then the follow-on question would be, you know, why are those, why are the functions of a lockmaster critical, or the lock maybe in general? How is this critical to the USACE mission? Uh, yes, uh, duties and functions of a lockmaster basically is to um, for effective mission execution, and uh, overall that consists of 100% availability of the navigation lock here at my site and the operation of the dam portion, which regulates the river in my location, uh, managing the workload uh, while ensuring work safety environment uh, for all the folks, um, leading organizational change, um, you know, at my level, anything that is um, pushed down uh, from the upper chain of command at my level is my responsibility. In executing my individual budget um, is in a fiscally responsible manner. Um, part of that uh, falls under me developing my employees uh, and working to strengthen uh, the relationships when, within my team. Uh, that last piece, it's ironic that I put it at the end, but I, I find that that's one of the most important pieces is to, um, you know, manage, and that's a general word, but manage um, my team, and, and that's on a, a personal note, you know, from their home life into the work setting um, and back again. Whatever uh, is happening, good or bad, um, I am the supervisor and I am uh, the coach, the mentor, the counselor, um, you know, to um, ensure that all of that is operating smoothly for them and for our workplace as a whole. Uh, the critical reason um, or how we are actually critical to USACE's mission is um, all of these duties ensure that Lock 8 within the St. Paul District uh, is adequately supporting inland navigation and the nine-foot navigation channel project on the upper Mississippi so that ultimately vessels can transport uh, their goods to and from um, uh, St. Louis on up and down. Yes, so uh, it obviously takes a lot of skills and a lot of attributes uh, to do the job that you're doing and to be a supervisor in this particular role. What do you feel has contributed to your success as a lockmaster? Um, success, I think, um, for me, the goal has always been uh, to better each individual. Um, the success of the team actually um, shows the success of myself here at the site. That's how I look at it. If my uh, my success is is shown because my team is successful. Um, so if I can better each individual on my team, again through coaching, mentoring, um, you know, engaging, whatever that is, their development um, is primary. You know, and increasing their skill set, uh, working as a team is is what I measure success at. But in order to do that, I personally feel that I need to be self-aware of my own limitations and be able to work on those before I can help and ask my team to work on, you know, their limitations and, and go above and beyond uh, for me and for our team. So at Lock 8, I think um, uh, collectively my crew would probably agree that we, we call ourselves our own family, Lock 8 family. Um, 
we take care of each other, yet uh, we do hold each other accountable. And I think that's what makes a strong team and ultimately is a success for our site. Yeah, and I think you've, you've touched on this a little bit, and I just want to follow up uh, one thing, uh, one aspect of this. Uh, can you describe a challenge that you face or that lock, lock and dam number eight family faces uh, as it goes about its business? Something you think that is important for the rest of us to know about, about your family there at lock eight. Yeah, um, challenge, um, one thing that rises to the top and probably will always be a challenge is uh, managing a 24-7 operation uh, with shift workers. In uh, that, my rotation of folks, uh, sometimes I don't see them other than once a week. I work a day shift, um, Monday through Friday. My folks rotate around a 24-hour shift, and when they're off for seven days or more, uh, I lose connection. And again, I feel that uh, being engaged and connected with my folks is a, a big part of the success here. And so I have to work hard uh, in trying to find those avenues. When when are they going to be working? Is their time or their project they're working on going to permit me to, you know, take a little bit of that time and um, ascertain how are they doing? What are their needs? Um, the, the windows um, and then, especially with COVID, seem that much smaller, you know, when dealing with uh, rotating shift work and, you know, helping uh, continue to solidify our team and helping them grow to remain strong and successful. Well, thank you, Jane, for your thoughtful answers. Um, really appreciate those insights. So, this time, we're going to transition over to Captain Morehouse. Ed, when we met earlier this year, you told me that the Wheeler is the largest boat in the Army. And I, I wasn't surprised by that. In fact, just uh, a, I'll digress a moment. The, the dredges that I had become familiar with in my previous job as a South Atlantic Division commander were the shallow draft dredges. So I thought I knew what a dredge looked like. And I arrive at the New Orleans district, my first visit to the, to the district, actually any district, uh, came around the corner of the district headquarters, and there was this massive vessel parked right there in front of the district. And um, I was woefully ignorant of the the size and the the capability of the vessel that you that you lead. Uh, that's what was there was the dredge wheeler. It was in for repairs. So I wasn't surprised when you told me that it's the largest boat in the army. Uh, please share with the audience some of the interesting facts about your vessel. What makes the Wheeler so unique? Yes, ma'am. Well, we uh, we bring it, don't we? How when you <laughs> when you walk up, uh, you know you've seen a, a dredge now, and that was actually uh, uh, kind of the purpose. The Wheeler is unique uh, in her construction uh, in that she came at a time uh, to be the pinnacle of the new. Uh, core dredge fleet, uh, what was called the, and still is the federal minimum uh, dredge fleet uh, back in the uh, 1980s, uh, late 70s and 1980s, when the core transitioned from uh, primary uh, dredging functions for hopper dredges, uh, everything that uh, was done by the private sector at that time was uh, inland dredging, stationary dredges and uh, uh, cutter heads, things like that. 
and uh, hopper dredges were uh, hopper dredging was back then relatively uh, progressing burgeoning uh, field and technology and um, uh, very efficient for United States dredging uh, because of the nature of our seaports and the need, uh, uh, and the fact that they're uh, by nature shallow draft and the need to deepen them and uh, and keep them maintained uh, rapidly uh, without a lot of mobilization. So at the same time, the private sector was uh, uh, was building uh, their fleet uh, of uh, hopper dredges and their uh, and their expertise. And the Corps made a, uh, a decision to uh, basically uh, get out of the dredging business for hopper dredging, uh, turn this over to the private sector, and simplifying it quite a lot, uh, uh, but, um, uh, and at the same time, maintain the viability, mission readiness, uh, maintain the core mission by building a fleet of uh, the most modern, the most efficient, uh, uh, and the most capable dredges uh, uh, in the US, uh, along with uh, research and development platforms to maintain the Corps' expertise in the dredging function. So the Wheeler was the showboat of this, and uh, she was the largest. She's the only dredge uh, dredging ship uh, in the world uh, uh, that has a third drag arm, a center drag arm on the center of the, of the uh, hull, uh, which is twice the size of the overside drag arms. She's got pumping power that is unmatched uh, with any other dredge at the time in the United States. Uh, she was designed for the most difficult dredging location in the United States, the Mississippi River, the lower Mississippi River, where when uh, the dredging season uh, uh, began, it required usually a fleet of uh, uh, four or five hopper dredges uh, to maintain the channel. Uh, once the wheeler came out, it was just the wheeler and um, uh, for you know particular areas of the river. So um, she also was built to naval standards, uh, built under Navy uh, sup supervisor shipbuilding uh, 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 inspection along with Coast Guard uh, and uh, uh, you know, national safety standards. She's built to withstand uh, um, significant. Uh, she's built for overseas. Uh, operations deployment worldwide. Uh, she's built for um, uh, re re redundancy of equipment, uh, technology, uh, uh, all these various things between research and, and development platforms and and efficient dredging. So in that case, she when she came out in 1980, it was the largest, most sophisticated uh, hopper dredge in the United States, and uh, she doesn't hold that moniker anymore. But she's still the largest in the army. Well, let's hope you can, we can keep bragging about that. We want to continue to say that we have the largest vessel in the Army. So thanks for that explanation. Uh, Ed, if you could also share with the audience even perhaps a more basic question, which is what is the purpose of a dredge? You know, what does dredging do for the USACE mission? Why do we have these dredges? Why are they so important to the, to the Mississippi River? Yes, ma'am. Well, I, uh, I I touched on it uh, before. The United States uh, is by nature a shallow draft uh, 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 nation of of seaports, and at the same time, we're we're an island continent, uh, so to speak. We're in the middle of two oceans, and uh, um, uh, commerce, uh, international trade, is uh, one of the most important uh, features uh, of our economy, and uh, we have to get. 
especially uh, this has come to light uh, uh, nowadays uh, uh, with the uh, shortage of goods uh, due to COVID. Uh, but we have to get ships in and out of our ports uh, and maintain uh, channel entrances entrances to the depth uh, and dimensions necessary uh, to maintain a good flow of commerce. Ships are getting larger, uh, they're getting deeper draft, uh, and uh, dredging is becoming more and more of a challenge. Then you have environmental factors, uh, storms, hurricanes, uh, flood events, uh, things like that. So all of these require uh, dredges of different types, depending on the uh, on the uh, uh, need uh, to maintain uh, uh, these channels. And a, uh, a hopper dredge. There's different types of dredges uh, to do the uh, to do this work. Um, there's uh, the very uh, extremely efficient and accurate, precise dredging, which is uh, cutterhead stationary pipeline dredges, which is what uh, most people are the most familiar with. And they uh, they have a cutter head which uh, uh, they, they they spud the uh, or anchor the dredge down and and very carefully uh, sweep from side to side. They can dredge almost anything, create new channels, uh, do very uh, precise uh, work to uh, to specific uh, uh, guidelines. Excuse the uh, clock going off there. Um, the hopper dredges are uh, more of a fire engine type. Uh, uh, dredge or what we call the uh, giant vacuum cleaners. We uh, we go in and uh, uh, where the shoaling has occurred, uh, where there are uh, uh, problems with a channel that they come up. We we don't require uh, excessive mobilization. We basically sail the ship, show up on site, put drag arms on the bottom, and uh, and load the material uh, into our uh, hopper. Uh, just giant vacuum cleaners on the side of the. On the side of the ship, uh, they go down at a 45 degree angle. Uh, the actual designation is a trailing suction hopper dredge. Uh, the arms uh, are on the bottom of the uh, uh, of the shoal, and uh, uh, giant centrifugal uh, pumps suck up the material, uh, just like a road grader, uh, into our hopper instead of carrying cargo of uh, oil or or uh, containers. We carry mud. Uh, we uh, load the hopper uh, in about where uh, we travel at along at about, uh, about two miles an hour uh, up against the current and um, uh, in various ranges to get uh, over the shoal. We accurately position the drag heads of the ship. We have a swath of about 100 feet. That we dredge at a time uh, and uh, in about uh, depending on the material. In about uh, uh, between 30 minutes to an hour, we've loaded the equivalent of 730 dump trucks worth of sand and mud into our hopper. Uh, we then pick up everything and take it. Uh, we have two choices. We take it out to sea uh, to an authorized uh, disposal area offshore and uh, uh, dispose of it there where it's out of the way. We basically help with the what the river current and channel should be doing. Uh, or we uh, uh, hook up to a pipeline and pump ashore as a, uh, a cutterhead dredge would uh, uh, would do. Uh, that's at least a less efficient uh, a method of uh, dredging, uh, but it's better for uh, beneficial use of the material. We can uh, rebuild uh, marshlands and uh, uh, you know wetlands and things like that. So um, basically, the short of it is giant road grader of the sea. Giant road grader of the sea. I'm going to write that one down. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I didn't appreciate 
the dredging requirements of our nation until I came to USACE in 2017. Uh, it is massive. The requirement is massive. I think probably underappreciated unless you're directly involved in it. Uh, a dynamic river like the Mississippi moves an awful lot of sediment around, and normally it's where you don't want it. So, you know, in order to keep the channel open and keep things safe uh, and continue to be this engine of our economy, uh, dredging is essential. I mean, it's a, it's a game changer for us. So um, probably underappreciated, uh, so good to, to share that with those outside of of your community or maybe even you safe that don't understand that. Uh, to you in particular, Ed, in your community uh, that you lead, your crew that you lead, the, the team that you lead, could you describe a challenge that you face as a leader um, that you or your team face in the dredging community? Uh, yes, ma'am, the uh, uh, very similar uh, to, uh, to what uh, Jane uh, described, uh, we are shift workers uh, here, and uh, we work a two-week on and two-week off schedule uh, here. Uh, unlike um, uh, classic uh, shipboard life, um, and it's actually one of the attractions uh, of a job with the Corps, uh, we have a, a crew right now. It's uh, 38 uh, members in the crew uh, on uh, two, two working tours, and... Um, they it, it's it's more than just a uh, uh, captain, chief engineer, and crew uh, environment. It's a family environment on here. We, uh, uh, unlike shoreside uh, 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 operations, we live and eat and and sleep on on the dredge when we're on duty. So uh, we're a family that lives together, uh, not just a team. And um, as such, unlike other uh, uh, vessels or, or classic uh, maritime vessels, um, we know each other more intimately than uh, um, than would, would be normal. We know each other's families, and we know uh, you know uh, we're concerned about the personal lives and the and the time off that people have. And so it, it's you want to stay connected, um, you know, with with the individuals, and you want to keep them in a happy uh, and safe working environment. And from a captain's point of view, I want to keep them alive. And, uh, uh, you know, when we're all living on here and we're still, uh, when we're off duty and relaxing, we're still in danger. Uh, the ship is still operating. So it's, um, um, you know, that's, that's the challenge, I think, is to keep people satisfied so that when they're away from their family uh, and, and, and homes, we, we still have a, a productive environment that's based on uh, their personal environment. So it, it's 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 a challenge to keep to keep up with that part of it. When the the general nature would be to you know I'm, I'm at I got my own things to worry about. I'm at home uh, now. Leave me alone. It doesn't go away. You're you're constantly worrying about a larger family. Yeah, what it, that's it. Definitely a unique aspect of the culture in which you work. So in the spirit of maritime tradition, I'm gonna ask you something that's very, uh, that is of the maritime tradition. Can you tell us the significance of a plank owner? Uh, yes, the uh, plank owner, it's, a, it's an old uh, Navy tradition uh, and merchant marine tradition. Uh, one side note is the merchant marine 
uh, ships in commerce was the original Navy in the United States, right? They were the first uh, uh, defenders of our uh, of our country. Uh, but uh, uh, naval vessels and merchant vessels were all made of wood, um, uh, and, you know, iron men and wooden ships. And um, uh, the tradition, that's uh, long tradition of the sea, is um, whoever is the first. Uh, crew of, uh, of a sailing vessel, uh, a wooden ship, um, whoever the first commissioning crew is, every member of that crew uh, has the right uh, when uh, they depart or when the ship is retired, uh, decommissioned, they have the right to, uh, they, they own a plank of the vessel, one of the wooden planks. Uh, that is true, that's, that has gone, uh, they can select uh, what, what part of the ship they want to take with them when the ship no longer needs it. Uh, uh, that is uh, uh, progressed into some part of the ship, you know, so on. <clears throat> and and the, the whole idea about that is when you are the uh, first uh, member of the vessel's crew, um, then you own a piece of that ship for the rest of your life uh, because you, you gave birth to it. So um, uh, in, in modern times, there are very few plank owners around. You go from ship to ship, uh, so um, uh, and you still have that right. So we have um, the, the significance on the wheeler is we have plank owners that were here uh, 40 years ago, 39 years ago when the ship was commissioned, that are still working on this ship. So, uh, that's the unique. Usually, a plank owner is long gone, and uh, uh, so it's a tradition if they want to find the ship. Uh, you know, sometime 20, 30 years later, uh, but on here, uh, people are still here. So we've had uh, recently, we've had people retiring that I've given a ship, a piece of the ship to because they were plank owners. Although I didn't give them a plank, <laughs> I gave them a ship's wheel or, you know, some, some part that we had uh, uh, replaced in, in the past from the original, original. So as, as the ship is modernized through the years, uh, I save some, I save the old parts that would be uh, good for, uh, uh, you know, to give as uh, retirement gifts to uh, to the plank owners that leave. Yeah, I think that is fascinating and and really speaks to the emotion between a crew and their ship. Yes. Um, uh, and it's I think it's special. It's neat that the the dredges within the Corps of Engineers continue that tradition. So, um, thanks for sharing that with us. All right, Pleasure. so I'm gonna gonna go to our third panelist. Uh, moving to Barry Sullivan and the map syncing unit. And by way of introduction, you know, Barry, anytime I mention the map syncing unit, whether in my notes to the region or other correspondence, or I'm bragging about the, the visit I made to your, uh, with your vessels there, I get a lot of interest in return. Uh, folks that are curious about it, they hear about it, um, but don't understand its significance. So if you can start us off with an overview of the map thinking unit and how it supports the USACE mission. Yes, ma'am. Um, and uh, did really enjoy having you out there and, and look forward to having you back out there again. I've still got your boots on the shelf, so uh, uh, they're waiting for you. <clears throat> the map thinking unit is, is supports, it's in fact, all three of us, Jane, Ed, and myself are supporting the same mission. We're supporting commerce that is vital to this country. And basically what the map sinking units mission overall mission 
uh, is is to keep the Mississippi River in the in the current channel configuration it's in, pretty much. You know, I've given the analogy to people that if if you were driving from here to Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, you know from Vicksburg to Jackson, and you got halfway there and the interstate turned and went out toward the coast, and the last time you were there, it carried you to Jackson, it would be a problem. And that's exactly what, if you look at the old scars on the Mississippi River, that's exactly what it has done historically. And that's created all these oxbow lakes and what are beautiful, but it makes for a very difficult um, situation to have a steady, viable uh, highway for, for our goods and services. And just an example, the, we all deal with barges. Uh, all all three of us have worked with, with barges and, and the commerce on the river. And, and one barge, uh, typical barge, is about uh, 58, 18-wheelers worth of, of product. And so a typical 35 barge tow is 2,018-wheelers that are not on our nation's highways. And so it's vital that that stays open. So what we try to do is stabilize the banks and that is done through the leadership of our uh, channel improvement team. We work for three different districts, uh, Memphis, Vicksburg, and New Orleans. They set up their priority sites. They lay out and design the, the way that they want the bank protected. And then we uh, uh, take our assets, which consists of our mat boat, which is a 1948 model and she's, she's still floating. We do patch her up pretty regularly, but she's still doing her job. And we have the map both the associated barges like our mooring barge, which actually kind of works like the tractor that pulls the planter and the, the map boat is kind of the planter that plants the concrete in the, in the water. But if you don't have a tractor that works, uh, you, you can't plant very many acres. And then we have 30, and we have, excuse me, 43 mat supply barges that, that we have to transport the mat from the three different casting fields to the sites. And uh, we go through on a good day, five or six of those barges. So it's, it's a pretty good uh, challenge for our motor vessels that we have. We have one tender on site, the motor vessel Harrison, and then we have, uh, the uh, William James, which is a 3,300 horsepower boat, and then we have the Benyer, which is 4,260. They support those this whole mission by pushing us and or the mat boat. Uh, basically, we make a trip about 1,800 miles a year, doing about five to 10 miles an hour. So that that covers that time. We are able to to do that because of, of a wide variety of, of folks, even private contractors that pour and cast the mats that support this mission. And and the our mat boat, as I mentioned, is a 1948 model, and you and I have talked about, and, and a lot of people, but some people may not be aware of Armor One, which is the new, more robotic mat boat that is, is scheduled to come out for sea trials in 22 and is scheduled to replace the current mat boat in 2023. We have approximately 
it, and and people say what well, you know it might say well do you not know exactly how many of your employees you have well that varies on a on a weekly basis because out of the number we have between 250 and 300 employees people get other jobs they they decide that this is not for them and they go home and are and so I've got people that have been out there for a few months and I've got people that have been out there for many, many years and have, have started out. In fact, uh, my assistant chief started out as a tying tool operator on the mat deck and now he's the assistant chief of the unit and he's been out there most of his life. And so it's, it's a unique opportunity for us to be able to, uh, to do what we do and to be able to keep the river exactly where it's at. Uh, we do run into challenges. Uh, sometimes the current is nice to us, sometimes it's not. And we and our, our folks on, on that vessel have to try to line that mat up with the current to where it kind of splits on the front and back side of it is where we go perpendicular out into the river. We're laying 140 foot wide or narrow sometimes uh, concrete quilt that we make up on the deck as we go. And we go up to 900 feet out perpendicular to the flow. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of forces working, uh, in many different directions out there. And if you, sometimes the, you'll have the extreme and we experienced this last year, we had very fast current running upstream in an eddy when we started the map. By the time we got out very far, not very far at all, we had very extreme current about the same velocity, probably around 10 feet per second coming downstream. So it, it's, it's hard to, that's one of the biggest challenges for my folks on the ground out there is to line that up and get it to where it will uh, lay properly because it can either tear the mat off the front like a paper towel with too much too much pressure on the front, or it'll actually float that three inch thick concrete mat on the water 25, 30 feet out in front of the boat if you've got too much current on the backside of it. So our team is, is really, they have gotten really good at adapting to a lot of changes. Of course, one of the changes that came up in recent, uh, last year was our coronavirus situation and we live, work and, and eat together, um, much like, uh, the wheeler and with 250, 300 people out there, we usually would go home every other weekend. That was not going to work last year so far as the exposure levels. So we went to 25 days straight at a, at a time. We don't get off the vessel unless for basically a hospitalization or the death of a family member. And, and we, they, we literally stay on the vessel and don't get on the bank, don't go to town or anything like that. And that's very different from what uh, the crew had been used to being able to do in the past. They could go in the personal vehicle and go to town at night and then come back. Or, or if they were close to home, they could go home and spend the night and come back. So all that changed last year, but I'm very proud of, the way that, that the crew has handled that. And we still have that mission to support. We still have families, our, our 
glad to be able to support roughly 300 families uh, off off of that uh, unit. And our folks earn their keep, they earn their money that they go home to. And so we, we come out and we do our work and we go home to our families. Yeah, Barry, thanks for that description. You know, I find that you really got to see it to appreciate it. It's incredible the uh, the um, coming together of so many different types of vessels that kind of form a flotilla and move their way together, being resupplied by the mat barges, uh, and watch that mat roll off that um, the um, the mechanical barge that you've got that un, un that uh, lays the mat on the bank of the of the river. It is absolutely incredible, and I didn't appreciate it until I was out there and watched it. And it, this is not for the faint of heart. I mean, this is it is hard work. Every little detail, uh, all the wires, all the lashing together of the different rows of concrete mat, um, the the maintenance of this very ancient uh, system that we've got, um, patched together, improved over decades in order to, to meet new needs and, and, and be even more efficient it is absolutely incredible. And I would encourage our audience uh, to, you know, if go on YouTube and, and type in mat sinking unit and watch, there's like three or four video that show that mat coming off and, and going on the, the bank of the river. Um, absolutely amazing. And, and um, so real, you know, I'm, I'm so proud of, you all as well, um, that the work is hard, the weather is unforgiving, sometimes the condition of the river are un unforgiving, but you you keep driving on. And, and really, we would not have the Mississippi River as it looks right now if it weren't for the mat sinking unit that's been doing this since the 40s with pretty much the same equipment and small improvements and, and then and staying safe the whole time. So. Um, so, you know, anyway, it really encouraged our audience to look at some video of it because uh, it's just so impressive. So you mentioned that you could have 300, 200 to 300 crew members at any one time in this floating city, as we're calling it. Uh, you know, that must take a lot of preparation. So, you know, what you as a leader and supervisor of all of this and making sure all the pieces come together uh, what does it take to prepare for the sinking season? Well, it it begins as soon as we get off the river. As soon as we come in, of course, we try to let people take their leave because they haven't been able. You know, we we don't get to take as much leave during the during the time because you know uh, of the needs of the positions. But when we come in, we typically encourage people to take their leave, and then we begin our layup process. And um, I guess I've got kind of a uh, nuts and bolts explanation. We come in and we fix what we broke and we go do it again. And so it's it, we we just have an, a never ending process of patching barges that are sinking. Uh, we, you know, the sinking unit, the boat named the sinking unit, that could have been a problem. But, you know, it, uh, as I mentioned, I think earlier, but we there are a lot of, we put dry barges on dry dock. We do a lot of the uh, work in-house. We also 
reach out to Inslee has been great uh, support in, in Memphis up there. They do a lot of work for us. And when we have to lift our mat boats, that's where we go and, and do those processes. This last year, uh, year before that, we re replated an eight foot wide, not wait, yeah, an eight foot wide section all the way across the bottom of the mat boat. And then this past uh, season, we did another eight foot wide section across there. Uh, when I say replaced, you can't replace it because it's it's a single hull boat and all the equipment above it, you can't cut away. So you have to just weld on and 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 uh, do. Then on the deck on that mat boat has about eight thousand of those rollers, metal rollers on it, and we probably we replace those as we go, but. Probably every couple of years, we have to replace the whole 8,000 of them because they get a lot of, um, they get rust and they get concrete debris and, and, and all that on them. So, and when they get to where they don't roll properly, it causes a problem with launching the mat down. And we have also just as a side note, between our quarter boats, our mooring bars, and the map boat, we have right at six megawatts of power generation capability out there. And because of that, and all that, and we have we carry roughly 15 bulldozers and a couple of tricos with us, we carry fuel barges. We have two 300,000 gallon fuel barges. We keep one with us at all times. In these long seasons that we've done in the past few years, we burn roughly roughly 1.2 million gallons of diesel in in six months, uh, based you know for power generation and for the operation of the equipment. And but all of that can't happen without the crew, and our crew has really been just great. I mean, with that many people, yes, you're going to have a few problems, but 95% of the people out there are don't give us any problems and we're blessed to have them. Yeah, and and they are really proud to be associated with the map thinking unit. I've here in Vicksburg, I occasionally run into employees that have retired out of out of the the Vicksburg district and they'll say, I was with the map thinking unit, whether it was their whole career or a portion of it, but they will be sure to tell me that they were with the map thinking unit. Uh, for a period of time, they're incredibly proud of it, and um, I, I can I can definitely see why. So we're we're coming down to the last few minutes. I just want if you could clarify one thing for us, Barry. Uh, we both of us have used this, the phrase "thinking season." Why is the thinking season limited to certain times of the year? Yes, uh, it is basically that way because of water levels. We have to have exposed bank or something to push off of. We basically do a one arm push up off the bank. Our mooring barge or spar barges, depending on how far we're out, have to heel against the bank. And that's what the bulldozers help hold that barge to keep it from running up the bank. And so we have to get perpendicular to the bank, but we have to have enough bank there to support <clears throat> For one thing, we have to have the dozers out there to not only hold back the uh, the bars that's trying to push against the bank to keep it from riding up the bank, we also have to position it with multiple bulldozers. 
And then also if, when we drive our anchors in the ground, the bulldozers line up and are tied to groups of anchors. So they serve as backup to, until we lay the mat to keep from pulling the anchors out of the ground. So every time we move, it's, it, we rotate downstream. It's, it's kind of like a dance. We rotate downstream. We move upstream with all the bulldozers. Everything has to move in, in conjunction. Of course, we use our radios to make all that work right. And sometimes in swift water, the boats are involved to help us get in on the next spot. And then we tie off and start building new mat. Cause we only, the, the mat boat, uh, it has room for two launches, which a launch is a, uh, is 25 feet long. So the individual squares that we, that are cast for us are made up of, I believe it's 16 individual blocks. No, 13 individual blocks. The old mats were 16. And they're a four foot by 25 foot piece of concrete and that is articulated. And we sew those together like a, a, a quilt and we have two rows of those. And then we, once we get those sewn together, we back out and let those launch over the front. And then we tie some more together and back out. And we have a supply barge behind us, as I mentioned earlier, that our cranes go out to and pick up the, the additional mat. And we just basically sew it together as we go. And um, so it, it takes a, a lot of coordination in, on that. And, and the, the workers right now, uh, take something that looks like a jackhammer and they tie each of those, uh, there's a tying tool and you've seen them. They use about a 16 inch copper wire. That's about eight inches. I mean, eighth an inch in diameter. And it, it does a counter rotational wrap around it. And, uh, and it, it ties the wires that come out of each, uh, individual square to a launching cable. And then uh, that's what allows us to keep the whole thing together and back out. Now, those launching cables are made out of just ferrous metal and they're designed to rust away. But the, the ties and the, um, and the, uh, the ties are copper coated steel and the fabric within the, uh, within each square is stainless steel. That's what holds it in place for a lifetime of up to, up to 50 years. And last year at the end of that, that long season, I just wanted to kind of, you know, I, just, I grew up in a farm and I just said, I wonder how many acres, if we just laid it out like, like floor tile, how many acres, what we put out last year would, would cover. And it would have covered and had to kind of recalculate it. I said, maybe that's not right. And so I did my numbers a few times. We put out enough concrete to cover a solid area of 610 acres, which is basically a section in, in, uh, in that one seven month season last year. Yeah, phenomenal work, Barry. Uh, again, kudos to your whole team. That, that was an incredible season. I saw you the day that the season ended. I ha we happened to uh, run into each other in the parking lot. So uh, incredible and the most challenging year probably as well yes, because of the pandemic. So, um, hey, look, uh, we are out of time. This has been a great conversation. I want to thank the three of you for taking time out of your
schedules to join us today. It's not easy uh, given your schedules, but also given the technology to Barry had to leave his his flotilla and go to an office shoreside so that he could join us today. I appreciate that and very special to have Ed uh, joining us from the Wheeler itself. And I'm glad the technology worked out. So thank you. Thank you for joining us today. I do want to close with uh, a message really to everybody who works in the fields that you represent, but across our ops uh, community out in the field and, and everybody that works physically on the river. Uh, we truly appreciate what you do every day. And in this region, we see the variety of climates. We have our folks working in the heat of summer in the lower valley, the cold of the winter in the upper valley, um, and everything in between. And this work largely takes place out in the elements. Our folks are exposed and their equipment exposed to the elements. Uh, and then lastly, and then lately add to that, the challenges really of what's turning into two operating uh, seasons in the midst of a pandemic. Our dredgers, the lock and dam operators, the mat sinking unit, uh, the, all the other work boats that run up and down the river all year round, our survey vessels, those who maintain our lake projects, our hydropower teams, thank you for what you do. Uh, you've been there every step of the way, making a difference and, you know, ensuring that this engine of the American economy continues no matter what the challenge is. Uh, it is an honor to serve with you as we collectively serve our nation. I also want to take the opportunity to, to thank the team that put this together, our public affairs folks, Mary Miller Ratliff, Ratcliffe, sorry, Lisa, Lisa Parker, Willie Day, Cameron Rice, our other public affairs professionals that help get the word out about this event. And then in closing to our audience, I want to thank all of you who tuned in today to listen to this episode of In the Valley. This forum a year ago, or almost a year ago now, was born as a desire to talk about our people, to highlight the diverse group of employees who come together as one team in many different ways, doing many different things from all walks of life, to deliver a program that not only benefits our region, but also does so in a very direct way for our nation. Each of you makes a difference, and I'm so grateful to be on your team. So thanks again for all that you do. I look forward to our next engagement. And in the meantime, stay safe, essay on, and building strong. Take care, everybody. Thank you.